This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Hello, welcome to Libri. Thank you everybody for coming out on this uh unusual Wednesday night. Usually we have public lectures and public events on Friday nights, but we decided to be crazy this week and have it on a Wednesday night instead. Um, for anybody who's a regular and comes to these lectures, please be, be notified that there's not going to be a lecture on Friday. This is the Friday night lecture on Wednesday. So, um, yeah. Uh, the following Friday, though, I forget the date exactly. Um, not the, the Friday, but the night. The 11th. The 11th yeah. will be 11th. Esther. What's the title of your lecture, Esther? An Etymology of Blessing. Okay, Etymology, etymology of Blessings, looking at the concept of blessing throughout the, the Bible. Um, looking forward to that. Um, yeah, so tonight we're going to do a number of things. Uh, first of all, I want to welcome... Uh, Joe Swinney, uh, Avery Robson, and Peter Harris, and welcome to all of you. Uh, thank you for coming. <coughs> Joe, it's, it's been fun to just meet you today. I've, never, I've heard your name for a while, but I've never met you before. Peter, it's wonderful to have you back after, um, you know, we've known each other a bit over the years. The last time I think you were here was, was it three and a half yeah. years ago? Yeah, okay. it was good, yeah. Um, but our... our our paths crossed a number of years ago at Regent College, where Nikayla and I were studying, uh, I think 2006 maybe, um, and the Harrises were there uh, for that year. And uh, and then going a little bit further back, my brother Tim visited the Arasha location in in Portugal. I'm not even sure what year that would have been, but uh, he, he told me he wrote banded the birds there 90 for a something. while in the 90s. Yeah. 1990s. So it's been. Uh, kind of interesting way in which paths have crossed going back over the years. Um, tonight we're really here to talk about a uh, book, Place at the Table, which is Joe's new book. Um, really excited about this book. I've read, I've read uh, the majority of it. <laughs> uh, and it's really, uh, really a wonderful read. Um, in reading it, I've been reminded of a sort of connection or bond between Labrie and Arasha, mm. um, which is, uh, I think, the more the more we spend time together, the more we talk, we realize that that bond is is quite strong. It's been very encouraging to me. Um, it's kind of like two strange, uh, unique organizations that share a family resemblance, almost. Yeah. Um, well, I think you're a parent organization to us in a way. I mean, we we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Labrie. It began well before we did. Um, but we, we drew on the brief for a lot of our inspiration behind the themes that the book is about, mm-hmm. and community and hospitality and, and welcome. So it's not exactly 
two streams. I think we're kind of a child. <laughs> or a tributary. Well, I wasn't around for those early days of race, so it feels like, feels like to me they're parallel. <laughs> the rewriting of history, I see. <laughs> but uh, just, just a word about some of the things that I've, I've found interesting, particularly in, in reading your book, Joe. Um, Arasha and Labrie, they're both callings that are unusual callings, even for, for Christian people that are trying to seek God's guidance for what they're doing. These, these are two quite unusual, unique kinds of callings that require a very real uh, reliance on God's guidance and provision in, in very tangible ways, very here and now, earthy ways. And there are also two organizations that, that share uh, the call to live out this belief that, that Christ is truly Lord over every aspect of life, and all creation, Everything in the world belongs to him, and uh, and, sh- and therefore is significant because of him. Um, the commitment to hospitality, I'm realizing more, especially since reading your book, that, that that's something that I wasn't, I guess I wasn't as aware that this was so central to, to Rasha's calling from the beginning, just having people in your homes all the time. Sometimes <laughs> people you, you don't know, sometimes people you didn't even expect, um, and yet engaging with people face-to-face uh, in really authentic and real and human ways, uh, not in um, uh, flashy ways necessarily, letting people into your real life. And then uh, there's just the intangibles, something about the ethos, uh, mm-hmm. commitment to somehow enjoying God's goodness and beauty in the, um, in the everyday chaotic mess of life, which is, you know, there's lots of chaotic mess in the brie. Sounds like in a Russian too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Not gonna lie. laughs> uh, but yeah, um, and, and, and a lot of the a lot of the things in this book rang true for me. Um, just the difficulty and the tensions uh, that that are inherent in having strangers into your home and and being in a ministry in which sometimes you you, you feel uh, distant from God and, and what is He doing and, and all these things are very much like Edith Schaefer's. Uh, Descriptions of early life in Labrie. It's, although I was joking with them earlier today, it's, it's, it sounds a lot like Edith Shaver's writing, except many, many more uh, references to, to bird species, <laughs> uh, which makes it just sound way more interesting than Labrie to me. But uh, you know, it's talking about all this stuff, and then like Peter saw forty-five species on the coast today. And, wow. Anyway, really wonderful. Um, Anyway, just a little bit of a heads up for the evening. What we what we're planning tonight is to is to really talk about this book and give give Joe a chance to talk about it and give Peter a chance to talk about Arasha. Um, and I'll be we'll be doing it sort of an interview style sort of way. So I'll be lobbing questions at them and uh, just to get them talking. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to start though by watching a short video by way of introduction, and then we'll then we'll launch into. Um, our questions. Hopefully this will work just seamlessly. Arosha means the rock in Portuguese and it's a charity that was founded in 1983 in Portugal. Right from the earth. Okay. The wheel of doom. 
represents the environment.
companionship and company. Mm. So, and then interspersed between the chapters, there are sections of my mum's journals, which go in chronological order from the moment we came off the plane um, in Portugal in 1983, start to Russia when I was five, and the final journal entry was just a few days before she died, and we were able to salvage the journal. Mm. Um, so it's quite, it's quite a lovely, long kind of record, and it shows how these themes looked in her life, which um, for me was it just set the whole thing alight. And um, yeah. and then there's also slightly random, <laughs> like first person biblical narratives because um, I really was so struck by how much eating there is in the Bible once you go looking, and how many meals there are, and how much of Jesus' ministry takes place um, over meal times. So, but I didn't want to do preaching on that. I wanted to try and capture what it might have felt like to be eating in in, in the biblical setting. So, um, that, that's in there. I think that's probably all the random genres. Yeah, no, it, no, it, it, it makes for really interesting reading because it because it um yeah you you it, it never there's never one one voice for very long, and so you're constantly um, yeah. Very interesting. The, my editor is very keen that um, we don't interrupt the flow, but also that we maintain our voice, distinctive voices. Yeah. So um, we've got different fonts. Oh yeah, I mm-hmm. um, But he, every time I was tempted to editorialise or kind of contextualise what my mum was about to say, he said that was kind of pushing the reader out of the experience of reading and making me kind I of see. be like, oh, so you're the writer and she's the kind of quote. But so, I see. Yeah. yeah. So it wouldn't be a book written by you with extended quotes from your mom, but actually yeah, no, co-authored. Exactly, yeah, that right. was that was the hope. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Yeah, and uh, the, your biblical narratives are just very. It's a very good way of of entering, and I think in a responsible way, entering uh, imaginatively into the, into the story in a way that makes it very very real and tangible. Um, you and I share some uh, something very deep, which is we've both grown up within these weird communities that are hard to explain to one's yeah. friends. <laughs> um, there's actually a passage, I'm not, I don't have it in front of me right now, but the, the, <laughs> it talks about how difficult it is to explain to your friends what your parents do. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the experience you had growing up in Arasha in which there was, God, people, it, it's just a sort of a countercultural way of life uh, um, yeah. and what that was like, yeah. Also, so I've, for the last two years, I've been working for Arusha as director of communications. So, um, it, I was—it's it's very familiar to me to be trying to explain Arusha, but as a five, six-year-old, it was definitely challenging. And I, I think there was also a lot more antagonism towards Christians doing things like outside of their lane, like mm. by Christians and by other people. So, um, and just quite a lot of kind of mockery of the so what next kind of thing, you know. Of, Christians doing bird watching, what next? Like, you know, Christians <laughs> making shoes or something. <laughs> Pair any unusual combo of things that don't belong together. So I was there kind of as an earnest young theologian going, no, but the Bible says that <laughs> the earth is the Lord. <laughs> there is no God. Yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, so when we used to do French um, oral orals for exams mm-hmm. we I, we just gave up and we used to say that um, dad was a lawyer and mum was a nurse two vocations that fit a category in people's minds <coughs> oh yeah, yeah. Helpful, yeah. <laughs> sorry no, what did you say your mum was she was a nurse mm-hmm. I'm no. oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Would you like to, is there a passage in the book you'd like to read aloud for us? Is that, is that something that you... Uh, I'm happy to do oh, it. Right, I, yeah. I will absolutely love doing it. I can't guarantee you. <laughs> um, will you? <laughs> I have chosen one bit by me and one by mine, if that's okay. Great, yeah. I have to switch glasses because I am blind as a bat these days. Okay. So my bit is just right from the very beginning. <laughs> Uh, let's begin with a bold idea. Might hospitality be as close to the heart of a lived Christian faith as church-going, financial giving, or Bible reading? There is something irrefutably uncompromising in these words from Paul to the young church in Rome, as direct as any of its exhortations and as clear. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And that's Romans 12, 12 to 30. But while hospitality was woven into the cultural fabric of his first century Mediterranean audience and remains so in much of the global south, for many of us in materialistically comfortable, individualistic 21st century settings, it's a lost art. It's a practice we've forgotten, neglected, or distorted beyond all recognition. So some reassurance might be welcome. To be hospitable, you do not need to know how to make squares of fabric into elaborate shapes. You do not need to have mastered French, Italian, Indian, or indeed any country's cuisine. You do not need to have unchipped glasses and matching plates, silver cutlery and specific knives for fish, butter and cheese. (laughs) You do not need to have a stock of witty anecdotes or a dust-free home. You can, in fact, be hospitable without a home. Among the classiest hospitality I've ever received was as an ancient camper van in Italy. That was the (laughs) I have also shared a packed lunch with a neighbouring car in log jam traffic, been offered coffee in a bus shelter, and been wrapped in the tenderest care by a homeless teen as I cried under a tree in a city park. Hospitality at its heart is just that, the offer of kindness and care, and a place to belong for a while. Okay, and then I am going to read from my mum's journal from 28th of August 1994 and the 4th of September 1994. Yesterday, a group of Portuguese people from the north arrived at 9am, having travelled overnight, and the outgoing people were still asleep. Twelve of us had stepped out on the beach that night to watch some especially good shooting stars, and overtook the arriving group in the lane on our way home. It was a question of taking a deep breath, making strong coffee, and setting to making beds, shifting rucksacks, cleaning bathrooms, and so on. There has been yet another setback in the saga of the reserve on the Alvo estuary. Despite the recent encouragements as the process to create the protected area goes forward, there have been signs that the developers and the local council are trying to create loopholes in the law in order to allow construction of a marina and major tourist infrastructure. 4th of September. Life lately has been hectic, as usual, but we are becoming familiar with the cuisine that was the house name, Juggling Act constantly changing houseful of students and visitors of various nationalities, lots of day visitors, a full ringing programme that's banding, 
renewed pressure from developers, plumbing problems and unexpected arrivals. Two puppies, a guinea pig and a hoopoe with a badly broken wing, all on the same day recently. <laughs> Sometimes as I've sat down to lunch under the rubber tree with 20 or so others, I've been tempted to contemplate the relative attractions of a slightly smaller family. <laughs> but no, it's a brilliant life. <laughs> and what a privilege to be doing this and how exciting to watch God at work in little and sometimes bigger ways. Though we sometimes feel we are running out of steam, we never actually do. Hooray for siestas, which are a great idea on stuffy, sultry days when getting from A to B feels like moving concrete blocks. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Do we have our download? Yes. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Yes. Shall we let it go? Uh, while, while I set this up, just just I'm just conscious that not everybody is a bird nerd in the room. Um, can someone can someone can someone explain what banding is? Oh yeah, Dad. Yeah, I don't see anybody here who's going to do that well. Um, <laughs> so what we were doing in Portugal anyway, because banding has become very high tech now, and it's a question of fitting real time transmitters on things. So I could call up on my phone where some of the birds we've just banded in France are, which is Angola and uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. They're actually there today, and I can see them because we put transmitters on them. Um, but in our day, and this was... St- you still do a lot of this. You, you capture the bird in various simple or exotic ways, sometimes very exotic, uh, <laughs> like working on the rubbish dump in Portugal to catch migrating gulls, with a net powered by strong elastic and all the rest of it. But anyway, um, you fit the band on and hopefully somebody in another part of the world catches the bird and then with that unique number, they can tell you where it's got to and in whatever time. And there are lots of variations of that. Mm -hmm. But it is a wonderful community activity. Mm -hmm. And many of the things we were studying, you had to be out all night on the Portuguese cliffs catching seabirds that only come to the coast at night mm-hmm. and 10% of them would have a ring on or a band on from another country mm. or ours would get caught there mm-hmm. and so you're in a community of people who are just discovering this unbelievable miracle that is migration where a bird this big would come back to the same bush on our Portuguese headland every winter for five years having spent the summer 3,000 miles further north Mm. in the same bush in Sweden. Mm. And it's just, it just makes you think the world is more miraculous than you could ever believe. Mm. Yeah. And it's in your garden, you know. So we found a new moth for science in our garden, incidentally, so you don't have to go far. Thank you. That's the most exciting explanation of bird painting I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and your brother is a legend in the field, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So it's very good. Yes, Sorry, sorry. Okay. Arocha means the rock in Portuguese, and it's a charity that was founded in 1983 in Portugal. Right from the early days, community and hospitality and shared life and shared food were all very central to what was happening. And Arosha has grown around this, this value of hospitality and community, largely, I think, because of who my mum was. 
she could whip together a complicated meal in no time with hardly any ingredients, um, usually a lot of garlic and mustard. <laughs> she did a lot of speaking and a lot of writing around the themes of community and hospitality and belonging and talked for a really long time about writing a book on it. Lots of people asked her, when are you going to write this book? You really should be writing. I assumed, and I think pretty much everyone else did, that it wasn't probably going to happen. In October 2019, um, my parents were in South Africa with the Arusha Tuvik Chris Nader and his wife, and they were on their way back to the airport to head home when there was a road accident coming over the bridge in Port Elizabeth. And, um, and the car went off the bridge and Mum and Chris, Chris and Stella were all killed instantly. In the following year, we realised that the house was just really quite a painful place. So we began to dismantle it slowly. And we had left Mum's study for last. We found this binder in which she had made a really good start on her book. We began to realised that she had done a huge amount of writing. It has an outline, it has the beginnings of about six chapters, all sorts of notes and quotes and thoughts. From from that moment really, from that day of sorting, I just was absolutely determined to get her book over the line and get her in print and get her words into the world. And what we have is, is a book that's very much co-written by both of us. It's our two voices talking about about this gift of hospitality, the gift of receiving it, the gift of giving it, and what it has meant to the both of us, and what it has meant um, to a Russia.
just absolutely over the moon. I'm so proud of her. That's my only dilemma at this point. You can, you can, very, you can do it if you want. No, <laughs> no. I have a low boredom threshold, and I, I, I think maybe some of you do too. And some may have been here, I don't know, some of you were here and met Miranda, I think, three and a half years ago when we were here. Um, although, unusually for us, that evening, um, I think I did most of the speaking, which we normally shared out between us, but we'd had a pretty heavy schedule down in New York, and so she... She sat that one out a bit, I think. But some of you have, uh, some have got to know her. But um, can I just say, you could do talk about um, from when you were at St Mary's and how what like what what was the inciting incident that started the yeah? I think um, I think the essence of the story is that it was clear to many of us who were working or concerned about conservation or the environment, even by, people used to say it's very early, but it wasn't that early. Um, By the 1980s, it was clear that this was going to be the issue of our times, was the collapse of the biosphere. And I think what's sad, and I argue with the Lord about this, is we don't know anything really now that we didn't know 150 years ago. The science of climate change was established 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the impact of human activity, although not quantified in terms that scientists would be content with, the broad outlines were absolutely clear way back then. But there was this deafening silence within the church, which at the time was still on the me project. Me, my life, my fulfillment, me and my God, was the narrative within the Western church which was in a deep accommodation with consumerism and with a a neoliberal improvement trajectory and was trying to sustain that idea 
that my life will get better and God is co-opted as part of that project. So the sense that, which most people in the poor world knew, that the creation is, is under assault and is giving up on us and our primary support systems are in free fall was not part of what the church understood as either preaching of bad news or preaching of good news. It was just silent. And simultaneously, I would say, and forgive me if I'm, I'm not meaning to be insulting, but the secular environmental idea was we shake everybody, we make them feel seriously guilty, we tell them just how bad it is, and then they'll get behind us and we'll save the world. And it's God's world and we're never going to save it. And they tried legislation, education, all of the, the levers that people try to pull, and none of them were attached to anything. Because as became increasingly recognised by even Gus Speth and people at Yale Forestry and everything, the problem is the human heart. The problem is human behaviour. The head of United Nations Environment Programme, Akim Steinman, came up to me at the World Conservation Congress in Bangkok in 2004, and he said, I'm supposed to work with nature, but the real problem for nature is people, and what changes people, he said. And that is, that is a Christian question. It's a question for lots of people, but it's a really Christian question. And so, if it's our condition that is leading to this deep malaise within creation then the real question is what is going to change us? And how will that then translate into um, these wider questions of how do we live within God's world in a way that is regenerative, not degenerative? Our economic model, our financial model, they're entirely degenerative at the moment. We, unless we figure out how human society flourishes without depleting the wider creation, we are done in a very short time. We've lost half of the life on earth in the lifetime of Arosha. The thinning of life, the deafening silence in the fields, the 60% of insects within all the natural reserves, even in the deepest rainforests that have gone in the last 25 years. These are real things, without even talking about climate. And the, the, the really sad thing about this is that the, the good news of Jesus Christ is not just for our own personal lives, which it is critically important for but it is for the whole creation that's clear from the beginning of scripture to the end and it's clear in the way that Jesus lived in the world and somehow we failed to manifest that so going to Arosha we thought words were probably not much use in a situation like that we just wanted people to come and live with us as we figured out what it meant to be faithful disciples with regard to the whole creation and not just in our own community life, although the community life was supposed to show something of the character of God. And as you say, it's a mess. Community life is a mess. Bonhoeffer had it right. Because you're not bringing a perfect kit to the table. You're not, you're not, it's not propaganda. It's, it's life lived with forgiveness and offense and difficulty. And this person who has clearly come from Venus or somebody saying, <laughs> nothing like me, and, and so on. And that's true of environmental work too. In our many campaigns around the world now, for the Atewa Forest in Ghana, for the Bekar Valley in Lebanon, for Banagata National Park, for all of these places, um, 
have been marked by tremendous ups and downs and mysteries. And the, the biggest mystery in my life was that accident, of course, yeah. which is almost a metaphor for the whole thing. Because the question is, where do we find our hope in catastrophe? Where are our songs that we sing in exile? Because exile is the condition of Christian people in these Western societies on a doomed project of personal fulfillment by getting more stuff. And that is the religion of our times. So Russia was and is a working, a work in progress of what does it mean to be faithful to the whole creation. In practical terms, it means banding programs and studying moths and habitats, and it means working with local communities to find other ways that they will survive without chopping down the forest and create livelihoods. And it means empowering women in places where their voice isn't heard so that they can actually guide the community to better places. And it means a whole bunch of stuff in practice. And we're in 21 different countries now. That vision of that original community just kind of spread, partly because of the internet, partly because a lot of people came through. I was reckoning the other day, 2,000 people probably stayed with us in the 10 years we were running Cruzinha. And they, you know, I meet them around the place now. We meet each other, and it's, it's going like that. So uh, that, that, that's a kind of um, inside-out view of Arosha, because the website's there with all kinds of films and facts and information, mm-hmm. but the heart of Arosha is that. To live Godwards in a way that honours the character of the creator, creator by looking after his creation, which is the first calling humans were ever given in Genesis 2. Shamar and Abad, to keep and serve the garden. As your own director of comp, I'd like to say there's more on the website than just facts and uh, <laughs> 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 It's a long time I'd since like I looked at it. Sorry, of course you will. You can write me an email if we can improve it. <laughs> a very fair point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I work for these people now. <laughs> so there are there are um, branches of Arusha now in how many countries? 22. So there are national organisations. Yes, in twenty-two there are. I gather from this afternoon there are twelve new local expressions of Arosha in, in a whole bunch of countries, which we hope will become full expressions in time. And there's 30-something in the pipeline for lack of capacity on our part to, to bring them on. And partly this emphasis on, on our work in the USA is that, and, and Avery is our new colleague here, and it's a great thrill, is that every other international conservation organization has a strong USA branch, which is resourcing and informing and and we have, we have never taken a full expression of Arosha in the USA forward. We've never been able to do that for particular reasons to do with things we can talk about. But it's been a, it's been a tough old... Um, I've been, I think, 35 times to the USA to endeavour to engage with, with the Christian community over these things, and it's just been a bit of a hard road. Mm-hmm. So... Maybe this is a good time to ask Avery what, what, what yeah. are the, the challenges that you see for, as the new director of, of Russia US? What, is, what, what do you what do you see coming down the road? Yes, it's something I'm still navigating. I'm newer to Russia, but we, you know, have been discussing that it's been 
So she's not the director of Rush US because there is no, no, no director. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. Director of development for North America. Okay, it's good. specific. My title, my title. Yes, so for Russian. She's very good with okay. communications over here. So she's not there. Good to get the terms right. Sorry. I'm not communicating. Sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. For yeah, North America, and so you know the creation care and conservation has been very political in America as we all know and especially with our society and just the tension there that's something that we're really trying to go away from um, Arasha is not here to bring tension it's here to pull people in it's not here to villainize an entity or an individual or shame them um, and I think that's really beautiful and why I was very excited to be able to take this on and help kind of just we want this to be a household name. We want this nonprofit to be able, when you say Arasha, it's not where we've been around come next year, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so how can this be recognized in our homeland and how can we be supported in a country that there's a lot of um, generosity to be had and support to be had? And so, um, you know, there's the Christian lane that we're trying to bring this narrative around that might not be spoken about in the actual buildings of churches and and might not be um, a common topic that we talk about. And then there's the conservation lane that maybe Christians don't feel as comfortable in or kind of if you are a Christian and a conservationist, you fall in this gap that you don't know where to fit in. And so we're really trying to pull all of that back and just allow it to be a conversation of, you know, when you're a Christian, God says to tend to our gardens. He create, We read about the creation story all of the time. How is that in our hearts, and how are we doing that in our own backyards? And then as a conservationist, how can you feel pulled into a Christian family and not feel rejected and not feel, if you don't have the linguistics or the common knowledge of faith, how can you feel supported from us as well? And so we're really just trying to bring that into the U.S. and hopefully, ideally, um, gather some support just like you all are to us. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have some experience, certainly talking to my brother about this this, this feeling of being, and even talking to, uh, to you, Gracie, about this feeling of, of being homeless in a sense, to be someone that really cares about the natural world and, and cares about the creation and is a professing Christian. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it falls through a gap because it doesn't, those two things, at least in the political climate we're in right now, just don't mm-hmm. seem to go together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is very sad because it's actually such a biblical mm-hmm. thing, such, such a actually a faithfully Christian thing to, to, to care for the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's just partly why we see an opportunity with the book because it's not a, it's, you wouldn't shelve it under environmentalism probably in mm-hmm. a bookstore. You mm-hmm. maybe, um, because everyone eats and every, people in, know what hospitality is or feel mm-hmm. they do and Christians know that that is part of who we are, but um, if you're going to eat, then that's you're impacting, mm-hmm. you're, you're interacting with the soil and the air and the water mm-hmm. and the creatures that provide for us, mm-hmm. and we treat very badly often mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the time. So, yeah, we're hoping it's a non-threatening conversation starter. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I would love for any of you any, uh, to to connect sort of conceptually this idea of people care, which is what hospitality is all about, and creation care. Sometimes in Christian circles, those two things are pitted against each other. In other words, Christians are supposed to care about people because people are important and God says so, 
we don't have time or energy or resources to to put towards caring for the creation. It's about people. That, that it's, it's a false choice, right? But what is what is the connect? What is the logical connection between people care and creation care? Mm. I think it's the character of God. But if you go even back to early preaching in the first church, you hear Paul saying, "God has established." the exact times and places where people should live so that they can reach out to him and find him. And we all bring our context to that search for God and that understanding of who he is. And we're all extremely determined by the places we live. But for the poorer world, um, you cannot flourish as a person. You cannot care for your neighbour if you're not going to care for his place. And the poor of the world always live downstream and downwind. I don't know if you've noticed mm-hmm. that in every city. I haven't checked what Boston is, but I'm guessing. It, it's, a, it's a universal reality. And so it's a question of justice. Mm-hmm. It's a question of God's heart for those who are most demuni, who are most uh, deprived. Mm-hmm. And it, it, just at the personal level, and, and I think with climate change, this is really the... I mean, Paul knows more about this than me, but it's really one of the connectors now that we see that nobody is immune from these impacts, but those who live an unmitigated relationship to the world around them, which is the poor, mm-hmm. an unmediated relationship. So the food is not via a commercial trading system or not via um, a broker or not abstract, but it... It's your animal, it's your land, it's your food, it's your crops, it's right there. If that is failing you, your life is in peril. Mm -hmm. And you cannot care for people, which is, Jesus said it, you know, if it boils down to anything, it's love your neighbor and love God. You can't do either. You can't love a creator God and trash his creation. It's meaningless. It's like saying, I love Rembrandt while you're standing on some astonishing portrait. You can't do that. And you can't love people who are part of God's creation and, and relying on it in very fundamental ways for their very well-being. And I think one of the catastrophes of unthinking urban life is the way that we are sealed off from the realities of weather, time, light, all of those things. And we live within a, an artifact that's a bubble. And I think one of the real shakers for us of COVID was we suddenly realized what an artifact that was. Because yeah. that was a zoogenic disease. That was something that has come about from our abuse of the creation. And suddenly, all the things we took for granted were no longer for granted. And it was just a kind of shock. But I think, I fear we're doing what we did after the 2008 financial crisis, and we're now we're doubling down. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going back to the same old... You go to the British airports, everybody wants to go to the sun and holidays again, you know, just, it's over, we're back. But trust me, the conditions for pandemics have not gone away, they're all there. And that was a mild one, compared to what we could have been. I don't know if that's conceptually no, where yeah, you are. Very, very Theologically, yeah. we could go in lots of different ways with it. But that's true. Yeah. You will always notice that the consequences of our broken relationship in the prophets and in are always felt in creation as well as human society, always. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you one very striking example. Those of you who were here three and a half years ago and have good memories may remember me saying it. If you, if you look at the first covenant between, between what my Bible says is God and Noah, when you read the text, 
in Genesis chapter 9, seven times it says, this is the covenant I'm making between me and all life on earth, and it keeps repeating it, all life on earth, every living creature, and not even just the behemoth, the, the animals that are our domestic animals, but the beasts of the field and everything that creeps on that, you know, God is establishing a new agreement with the whole of creation, and we have to be part of that in showing what that means in the way that we live, in a life-giving way rather than a destructive way. Mm-hmm. We, we have an inevitable relationship with creation, and food and hospitality shows us that. Mm-hmm. And our only question is, will we live that relationship in a Christ-like way, or will we live it in an abusive way that has made a God of money? Mm-hmm. And that is essentially that single capital mm-hmm. view of life that is wreaking the havoc on the world and making a desert of it. And how, how, in what ways does hospitality, which is really the theme of this book, um, address this this question? Um, not just people care in the abstract, but hospitality, the way in which we share our space and share our food and share our life with with, with people. So it's, um, the, the COVID pandemic um, was another interesting time when we could have reset and we could have... Um, come out from our individual hutches and decided to live communally and I don't think I can see that happening, especially with the well, what we call in the UK the cost of living crisis. Mm-hmm. There's very much a kind of um, sense of fear around resources and hoarding for yourself and even around heating. Mm-hmm. Um, not wanting necessarily to have people put your heating on unless it's for your family. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that at this point in time, Christians have got a, a, a time to to make a radical difference because we have always known how to share our resources and um, we've always known that's part of how we are supposed to live. The church is supposed to operate like a family and a, a porous family where more and more people, anyone who, who needs a family is supposed to be able to join us and belong. And... Um, I'm losing the trail of where I was going. What was your question again? Uh, how, how, in, what, in what sense hospitality is, a, is an answer to this, this, this question? Of Joe began yesterday in London, so you have to cut us. Yeah, yeah. Really, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can follow the question wherever you want, really. Yeah, yeah so I think... Um, I think the word hospitality has got conflated with entertainment and the first job is to decouple those ideas because entertainment is um, about show, about um, some sort of um, not not normal life that you're putting on for people and it could be a hobby if you're a particularly good cook um, and it's quite intimidating for people to a lot of effort to give it and sometimes effort to receive it <laughs> and it's stuffy sometimes yeah. and I think hospitality in the Christian sense is um, yeah, a place it's, 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 it's providing warmth and focus to someone and yeah, the care of their physical and emotional spiritual needs and I think it's um, very much how how God is within the Trinity is, is a community right there. Mm-hmm. So I'll stop. Yeah, no, I, I think that rings so true for me because in the Reem, it's it's totally um, 
hospitality is an aspect of, of our calling, and so we end up talking about it a lot and thinking about it and, and clarifying what it's not and all these things. Yeah. And, and uh, we often talk about designer hospitality is not not the understanding of hospitality that we're really supposed to have. Design, as in, present a facade, have all the best everything, yeah. seamless party, make it look as if your home and your space is just effortless and perfect mm-hmm. when you know it's a facade. People coming may know it's a facade, but if they don't, they feel extremely uncomfortable because they're, really it's presenting something that's not quite yourself, and so the person coming into your space can't quite be themselves either. Yeah. So, so something yeah. about the authenticity of letting someone into my real space, seeing something of who I really am, including maybe some mess, including whatever, um, actually makes someone else feel more at home. Mm-hmm. They know they can actually be themselves. Uh, and uh, I felt this way even, mm. this is a little bit of a different thing, but I'm a church musician, and one one Christmas service was meticulously planned at our church, and it was stressed out about when does the choir sit down, when does the choir stand up, and everything has to work perfectly because so many people will be in church that aren't normally in church, and we have to get this program and all, all this stuff, right? You know, and everybody's stressing out about it, and you know, it went pretty well, but there was some gaffe in the middle of the service in which the choir was in the wrong place, and everybody laughed, and it was like, oh no! And you know, one person who was not a member of the church came up to me afterwards and said, "That was the moment that I was so thankful for because then I knew." I felt I could feel at home then after that point, yeah. um, which was which was a mistake, right? It was a mistake, and yet that's what made this person feel at home and welcome in a way that they hadn't before, and it was very humbling in a sense because all the fuss about about presenting a perfect program or something was just kind of revealed for sort of you know something that wasn't actually going to accomplish what we were praying for. Yeah. <laughs> So that's that. A lot of the stuff in your book about that, about the ordinariness of hospitality, is really beautiful and and rings true for, I think, for us as as green workers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just this is like normal life. Mm-hmm. I I'm not I'm not an excellent housekeeper, and um, I think I've got better over the years. But there was a friend I had who, who uh, over the, the like the black years of the, when cleaners used to walk out on us and. Um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, I, they came to our house a lot, and I had never been to their house. <laughs> anyway, so the first time I went to their house, I was like, oh my gosh, like, there is not a speck anywhere. So I kind of thought I'd break, like, address this obvious awkward issue, and said, oh, you must find it really difficult to be in our house, the amount of dirt, and they just, like, looked at me like that, like... Basically, yes, I do. I'm oh. really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. I will run the vacuum around before you <laughs> If Miranda were here, she would tell of when we were first working in the church in, in Merseyside, and we had three kids under four, and the youth group basically lived in our house, and one of them turned to her one day and said, when I grow up, I'm never going to have a house like yours. Oh. <laughs> I've never let my house get like this. Yeah. That's yeah. in the book, isn't it? But I think one of the reasons I see an exodus of younger people from the church all over the world is the gap between what you could call front stage and backstage. Oh, yeah. And there's, the authenticity is not there. Yeah. And I think that performance idiom of the Christian life has been very seductive. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to clean up because, you know, 
and it's part of the us them kind of and you, you have to bring to it what you bring you know and I think to relax about all of that and you, it's just Christ in us the hope of glory whether you're a mess or you're not a mess and you have to trust to that rather than we can't trust God with it we've got to clean up first uh, and I think that we lose the important stuff on things that really don't matter but what I think is beautiful in Le Brie, which you gave to us as a gift in Arosha um, and what we have endeavoured to live out faithfully is allowing people on the inside over a long period of time when the talking stops and they know what you are so there's no point in saying you're something different but do we trust the presence of God among us or not and what do we think it is John Stott used to say we have a mania for tidying up <laughs> and, and I he was a <laughs> some new subject. <laughs> and, and, um, I think I think that you know he was a meticulous yes, man. Yeah. He was. And if he would say that, you know. yeah. I'd like to open it up for questions from from any of you. Usually in Libri we have a you know a, a lecture with one person person talking for a long time, and then we open up for discussion. But this the nature of this evening is obviously very different. And any of you have questions for, for any of our guests, uh, please do chime in. I can keep asking questions, but I'd like to hear if any of you in the room would, would like to ask. Yeah, Sarah. Um, I just wanted to jump in on this particular theme that you're talking about, about um, the hospitality to people and to the creative world. And I just keep thinking of um, the way I use the language of hospitality for non-human things, like my sourdough starter, like I have to create a hospitable environment <laughs> for it to actually do what it can do best if it has that environment um, there. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm just wondering um, maybe your thoughts on that too, like the, the stewardship of the earth, whether it's in our own little small corners or on our kitchen counters. <laughs> um, like there's something about like providing conditions that are right mm-hmm. for it to be what it's meant to be. But yeah. that's an act of hospitality. And yeah. I think um, even what you're describing, Ben, with the church example at Christmas, is like there's something about, um, yeah, like setting a tone of, of ease, like that it's okay to not be perfect. Yeah. in this yeah. like even that feels very hospitable yeah. when I think of how do I, how do I keep taking steps yeah. to care for creation in my own world it won't be perfect it won't have impeccable <laughs> you know outcomes or results or whatever like there will be inconsistencies but so. everything has um, a way and a place in which it thrives and God made it so that we could all thrive together Um, and it shouldn't be in competition or in opposition to each other when when one thing is doing well then everything around it does better too Mm -hmm. Um, which is I guess the essence of ecology and an ecosystem that it should be able to balance itself and we've set ourselves up as, as, as like as humans 
that that we need to dominate and take. You know, the, the children's book, The Giving Tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end, it's like a little stump and it can't give anymore because it's had its everything taken from it. But a tree that hasn't been stripped back can continue to provide fruit and shade and um, materials for more soil and materials for nest building and everything does really well when it's allowed to be who it should be and live how it should live. Yeah, I Can I talk about the liturgies of life a little bit? I think this, as you know very well here in the Brie, this very, this separation between spiritual and secular has been very damaging. Absolutely. But the understanding that life itself is, can be lived in these liturgical rhythms, and as with everything in the Christian life, this is something inner, this is not something about bolting on new actions. I mean, you can bolt on liturgical actions, like I try never to take um, any powered anything up to the eighth floor of a building, but to walk it, because it saves carbon, it's good for the heart, it mm-hmm. reminds me of, of my connection to the energy supplies. and It's a liturgy of life. But I think all of these things come about, because this is Libri, I can talk about two theories of acting. So Stanislavski's understanding of acting was very much that you learn the gestures appropriate to anger, you learn the gestures appropriate to stuff, you get extremely good at all those things, you, you do it all from the outside, and you make it all happen in the outside. And Grotowski was saying, no, the actor is naked, he goes on the stage, and he experiences anger or frustration or desire or whatever, and what happens, happens. But it's, it's within, and I think the Christian life is akin to that, making sourdough done, as George Herbert would say, as to the Lord, mm-hmm. is an act of worship, of recognition, of gratitude and all the rest. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't do it because you say, when I'm at Stoudo, I must be, there's a prayer for that. You, you, you do it because, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a posture. And therefore, some of these spiritual disciplines, like beginning the day before your media, in the presence of God, and in worship, and letting scripture soak into your imagination... This will come out in how you make bread. And it will be bread that shows that. Whereas the industrial processes about getting this to that from here. Did you know that the food we grow now has 40% less of the nutritional value it had at the end of the war because of what we've done to the soil around the world? I mean, it's just... We are so stupid. But this has got, <laughs> this has got to come from the relational renewal with God that the Holy Spirit does in us. Uh, and then it translates into the practices. And our worst fear with the Rosha has been that people would simply adopt a kind of a Rosha way of doing things. Because yeah. that would be the wrong thing. And there isn't one anyway. And we are the worst of sinners anyway. But what we're aiming at is the renewal of life in Christ that will outflow into all of it. It's the all of it. And that's what the Labrie project is about. It's figuring out what does it mean to be a Christian in tech or what does it mean to have a Christian understanding of, of your, your iPhone or your wedding or the coffee you drink or the films you watch or you don't watch or the people you talk to or you don't talk to. All of that is God's work in us, the people of God, collectively. Not me and my Christian life either, collectively. Avery, 
you have something you wanted to, to add to this? Well, I'm calling Peter now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do not do that. No, but he's so, he's so eloquently spoken, so it was essentially going to be the same thing as what you were saying, but it's about heart, heart posture. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that when you were asking what's the level of creating a hospitable environment, and I was thinking actually about, you know, um, the performative or the entertainment side of like hosting and doing all of that, but also my mom is artistic and interior designer by heart. And so her having those details in her home is showing love to Mm -hmm. her guests. And so it's not about whether your house is clean or dirty or beautiful or bare or, you know, it's about your heart posture and how are you expressing your love and how are you, and, and same with creation care, how, what is your heart posture? Um, and that was really big for me coming on with Arasha and just wanting that narrative to be really expressed to especially the U.S. because I think it makes people not feel shame and not feel like, okay, am I doing this right? Am I doing this correctly? Mm -hmm. There's so many, it's your heart posture and it's about wanting to create that hospitable environment and wanting to be that person that can um, foster that and and offer that. And Mm -hmm. really, I love that about Arasha because then there isn't any rules or regulations. It's really just seeking God's guidance and allowing you to be exactly who he's created you to be and and do what he is desiring within you. Yeah, right. Well, I was just thinking, what, again, your example of the... the um, the service that where, where it all went wrong, you know, we're trying to be perfect and, and it, it all went wrong. We, we've been members of, um, of a black church for 25 years or something. And, and um, one of the things that we love about it is that when somebody gets up and or, or the children's choir does something, somebody flubs up or somebody gets up to say something and starts to tear up, the whole congregation just sort of says, that's all right. Take your time. That's okay. There's it, it just it's totally the opposite of this feeling of <gasps> the cringe moment. You know, yeah. the cringe moment. <gasps> Somebody blew it. Somebody, you know, lost their line or or m- messed up a solo or or started to um, to tear up over something. It's just the whole church saying, "It's okay. Take your time." It was they go on tour. Can I have them come with me? <laughs> <laughs> It struck me particularly because I was just preaching in a church in Virginia okay. where the pastor we met in the street before the service and so the pastor went around the various ones of us that are part of it says, We do not want any cringe moments. Okay. These people have not come here to cringe. Oh, so you screw up something. So have your middle button buttons and, and go on. And so that, that's happened before this mm-hmm. service like this happened. The next week, oh, we'll go to our church, and it was that's okay. Oh, and, and it's, not, it's not sit down. Try no. You can. We, we expect you to do it, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can take you your time. Yeah, it. it's okay. And, and so it was just <laughs> grace. Yeah. Grace in action. Yeah. 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 Uh, this is what the whole story about grace in in the midst of human just yeah. bumbling and messiness and and uh, what what a difference it is to be terrified of a cringe. You know? <laughs> yeah. so awful. And just the the um, 
I think part of it is that it, it just deflates the idea of this is a performance. Yeah. Yeah, this is a absolutely. performance in which something perfect is presented and the audience receives it mm-hmm. and is, you know, whatever, impressed or something like that. And, and that, that's what's, that's, so what, what, what a sort of authentic hospitality is not, right? I mean, we, we, um, my husband and I were part of a really wonderful church, I have to say, but it had like one flaw, which was that its main value was excellence. Not even like, they weren't even embarrassed by that, they like owned it. Um, <laughs> and one really beautifully ironic thing was that they decided to have a 2020 vision, 10 years before 2020. And I discovered a bit later that 2020 is average vision. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not great vision. 2060 is really good vision. Oh, average. <laughs> Did you have a question? Did I see you? So much of what you're saying resonates, but it's like I struggle with how do you change or make change. So, like, I get, I could weep when I'm in church, I'm in a traditional church, and um, the hymns are so nature based. And the scripture talks about nature. I always think of. Noah's Ark, they put two of all the animals. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like, leave these behind or don't bring this one, it's all. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the Garden of Eden, but throughout, right? And and we sing the glory of God's creation, and then I look at the landscape around the building. Nature is messy. It's not perfect green lawns, and this summer, they were reading children's book, and almost every single one was about nature. And the one that made me really almost weep was the um, it was like saying all these different things in nature that, um, you know, for the Bible tells me so. This is like, for this tells me so. And it was like, for the dragonfly tells me so, that God loves me, right? Mm-hmm. And I looked at, all we have to do is not put the mulch down. And, you know, put leave the leaves and mm-hmm. simple messiness because it takes dragonflies like two years to live in the leaf mulch. Mm-hmm. There's no dragonflies growing on our church lawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no... I'm not even talking chemicals, which, you know, that's a whole other story, and wasting the water that's sprinkler out during a drought and it's running down the driveway. And it's like, but you can't be the person that tells them you have to change. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I mean, just how do you effect change when mm-hmm. people just don't see it and they're singing to God's glory in nature mm-hmm. and then they want that landscape to look not mm-hmm. messy. Yeah. <laughs> no mess. So. Very good question. Any ideas? Like, yeah. They're very good questions. Yeah. <laughs> I think if we knew, we wouldn't be sitting here. Because <laughs> uh, we've been singularly ineffective <laughs> in achieving change, I would say. You're talking about theories of change, aren't you? And um, we made a choice in for us, and others will make other theories of change choices. Our theory of change choice was... So what did Jesus do? He just did it with the people who were there right in front of him for a long time until he got put to death. So we're going to do that. And it's basically an incarnational view. First of all, a Russia around the world never tells anybody what to do. Because we don't know their place. We don't come from there. We don't have a, a global, you know, this is what you do to be a Russia. What we do is renew that life in Christ, make sure that it's understood that it's about everything, and see what happens locally. And that's and for a long time, over a long period of time, that's an organisational distinctive. We don't go away. 
we're, we're there, we're from there, we belong there, we're, we're just there, we're not going to go away. And that's a theory of change, and it's, I've been, we've been highly criticised for it at different times, uh, and we are trying to be savvy with the work that Joe and uh, and Avery are going to be doing in doing what Jesus did and finding the idioms that people already use and, and mobilizing them in ways that are surprising. I mean, you, I'm not saying you're not wise and savvy, but essentially our choice has been what James Davison Hunter, the sociologist, called faithful presence. If you read his book, To Change the World, which is essentially dealing with the question of how in so many societies that are predominantly Christian is the shape of that society very far from Christian? He will say a number of answers, but part of it, the answer is faithful presence. You just, you live rightly as, as your community within your network of relationships, which you extend as far as you can, and then hope that others will see the wisdom of that and join you. But finger wagging will never do it. Can I, can I just add to that, though? For you your... can disagree, too. I don't disagree. If your mother was here, she would always disagree with me. <laughs> she is braver than me on that. <laughs> uh, can I just... Um, I think... Um, so there's an amazing communicator, climate scientist, called Catherine Hayhoe. Oh, yeah. And she says, that, um, she says that the thing we can all do is just to ch- talk, talk to people. So when you say you can't be the one, you can't tell them. But I've just learned from you that... Um, Dragonflies take two years to grow and they need leaf mulch, maybe. Just start, whoever is in charge of the grounds at your church, they probably don't know that, mm-hmm. that they're making a choice that is depriving, maybe they just don't know that mm-hmm. that the tidiness is meaning there are no dragonflies and maybe they don't know how beautiful dragonflies are and their role in the ecosystem and maybe you just need to start chatting and sharing that your love of those Creatures and you don't know me, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I've been chatting. I'm not saying oh. I don't, but I also know you can't. I can't, you know, lead by example. You know, showcase different ways of doing it. But yeah. change doesn't like. Well, it doesn't happen fast enough. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. It doesn't um, Is there a corner they would let you be master of? <laughs> she is a she is a master. Are you of a corner? Of a corner, yeah. Yes. What? Are you? A, she said, "Is there a corner you could be a master of?" And I said, "You are." And all of your native, all oh, yeah. natives. Yeah. Um, we share a little bit of what you've yeah, been doing in South Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, there's many people here who have helped also um, oh. volunteers. Yeah. We started um, knowing that. To make change, people well with native plants, which is what our native insects co-evolved with. And if we don't have native insects, the rest of it's all gone. And um, I don't know if people are familiar with um, Doug Tallamy's book, talk, "Bringing Nature Home," or E.O. Wilson's "Half Earth." And it's like I'm an open space commissioner, chair of the open space commission in town. And we okay. can't save enough land to save. You know, all the land you put aside, there's not enough left to fix it. So we have to change what we do at home. Mm-hmm. In our own landscapes, yeah. and you have to make that change. Like from this, you know, since they came over with seeds for grass when they first settled this country, mm-hmm. how many hundreds of years? 
we've gone who, down. Who was that? Was, was that us? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, not you, but <laughs> the Dutch. Landscaping with in a certain way, and you sure. want that, and yeah. to go back to like if you read the early. I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but the early literature, they were just amazed at all the plants and what they yeah. found here, and then immediately set out to change it to yeah. what they knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to change that back is challenging, and people know what they know. And, you know, there's all kinds of social economic stuff to it. And yeah, yeah. World War II, the veterans coming back, wanted their lawns, and all of that, right? <laughs> and now to say, no, it's got to be messier. And then you have to embrace this look and people just aren't going to so what we're doing is making public display pollination preservation it's not pollinators it's preserving the relationship between the animal and the plant pollination preservation gardens where people will see them not just in conservation land but as they're like going to we have one at the library so you can see it when you walk in there Um, leave the leaves I got the town not to blow the leaves off the library ground and then I was like what are we going to do with all those leaves in the spring but luckily they blew away and <laughs> someone else's problem we left them in the we left them in the plants in the base yeah. so like you know that are you sure. going to clean that up like no and on and on and people see it and then maybe people will start to like it and then the garden which was well planned out to the best of my ability and then it it, it was like oh my god it's too wild they'll hate it and then everyone's told me that they loved it so you know maybe little by little and then a friend came up to me and said oh I've got all this land in my yard I'm ready to plant right and the South Broken Land Foundation there's a garden there Mm -hmm. you know so yes that can happen but then you know institutionally it's just really hard Mm -hmm. and um, but even to do an obvious thing like getting rid of the beginnings of slavery it took 50 years we always knew we were in for a very long war with this mm. it's organic change isn't it and you can't right I, I, you've got to keep just keeping doing what you're doing it's tremendous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just you, saying, like, you have to not like Schumacher said you just mm-hmm. can't trouble your soul with the consequences you just do it the right you do the right thing the best you can and, and that's what you do you know and we are building what I what did I say once um, we're not just planting gardens we're growing community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're trying to make people appreciate this look but and then no and then some people hopefully will just want to care about the ecology mm-hmm. and then for the rest of them then maybe they'll just plant the plant because it's pretty mm-hmm. yeah. and they don't need to know oh and we had packaged, we collect seeds and clean them, package them. And last year we distributed 1,500 packets oh, and showed people how to grow them. You can do it here too, in a milk jug. And then you get hundreds of plants the next spring that you can plant because our native plants need to be overwintered um, for this cold strat. And, I mean, so yes, all of these things make a difference, but. That sounds great. My church still has very neat long. I'm thinking one one comment. It's one of the reasons why it's so challenging is that it's like a 
it's a struggle that exists on so many levels at the same time. It's not just about convincing someone they should care about native pollinators uh, or convincing somebody of the need for that. It's, it's also addressing our obsession with lawns. It's, it's, it, 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 there's, it's so much of a whole person like problem. You know, uh, wh- where is that coming from? Where is the what's the drive to have the best looking lawn in the neighborhood? Where is that coming from? That's a spiritual problem. You know, this idea of competitiveness and status and all these things. It has nothing to do with plants. It has to do with the human heart and and uh, all the best information in the world about native pollinators. Um, it might not make contact with somebody who um, whose priority in life is to look a certain way. You know? And so that that's why it's so. Hard. I mean, it's not surprising to me that it's a hard road in Southborough. Um, yeah. just our, our goal, though, also is that someday they'll look at the, you know, if you've ever watched the Home and Garden Network TV show, <laughs> and they go in and they say, that house is so 70s, blah, you know, <laughs> you know the pink bathroom, or, and I was like, I can't wait to Maybe move a green on. lawn will be that They'll look like, oh my God, who <laughs> does that anymore? <laughs> <laughs> but we're not saying I that. I will say one thing I do say is because we're not getting rid of all the lawn people. If you want some and there's uses for it, like your kids playing on it or a picnic or something. So we like I, the saying I've picked up is um, when you're thinking about your lawn, Think scatter rug, not wall to wall carpet. And hopefully that day will come. <laughs> it's just, anyhow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Daniel, Yes, I'm wondering, because I've seen some other environmental organizations around the United States, um, like Greenpeace is one. I heard that their owner, like, he was so excited and he wanted to go all over the place and and stop the biology from becoming extinct and stop global warming from doing the same. But then the organization changed and and it didn't really follow quite the mission that he and a lot of the other founders want. And I've noticed also that in the United States sometimes Christian organizations go off track a little. And it has to do with culture, right? Um, But how can you um, make your organization not have that happen? And how can you approach um, environmentalism in a way that's distinctly Christian and stays that way? It's a very interesting question and a good one. And we are living through a profound generational change in Arosha, which was accelerated through the accident. Mm -hmm. And so we have thought about it a fair bit. Um, I'm trying to give you um, an honest answer. I think there are institutional things you can do, like involving everybody in some clarity about who you are and what you are, and constantly refreshing that because you don't want it to be set in stone. It's got to be a dynamic, constantly changing thing because the conditions change, the context changes, and all the rest of it changes. 
um, and finding ways we've just been through a big process of establishing a global covenant between all of the Arosha's currently in existence and part of that was revisiting our history and finding out well what were we at the beginning anyway and is what we think we were what we actually were and that's Mm -hmm. interesting too so you need meticulous historical work actually to find out what were we about and what are we now and and what will we become but at the end of the day I'm again feel quite relaxed about this I think God will do what he wants to do and if a Russia changes to something else he'll be doing something else with the Russia at that point and he'll do that with somebody I mean I don't feel mm-hmm. a Russia has got to be this box that contains the original juice if you know what I mean I don't, I don't see it in those ways I think we are fundamentally at our best a responsive organisation to God and following where he's leading us and some of that will involve painful change, probably. Can I say something? Um, yeah, I think you probably better, because it's a very interesting <laughs> question. <that's laughs> so as part of this covenant process, um, we threw up a lot of things into the air, and with the possibility that they might all land differently and some might not land back into the organisation. And hmm. When the um, Russia became more than just a bird observatory and field study centre in southern Portugal. At that point, ten years from the start, I think, um, we landed on five distinctives about us. Um, and so all of those were put up for examination and question from bet- between the whole family of organisations across the world. Um, and they begin with five Cs, but only in English, so that's a problem. But um, it helps me because I'm English. Um, so it's Christian, conservation cross-cultural community and collaboration and I won't unpack those but um, what I'm delighted to say is that we have we we affirmed our commitment in those five things we've changed we tweaked a couple of the words we went from um, cross what did cross-cultural we, went to cultural diversity cultural diversity mm-hmm. thank you and um, we went for, from cooperation to collaboration or something like that and then we've tweaked the definitions but we've, we've just, as a whole family, gone through quite a rigorous and exhaustive process of saying, do we want all of these things? Mm-hmm. Are they who we are? Are they who we want to be? Are they ex- expressed across us all and not just a few? Mm. Um, and we have reaffirmed and recommitted to those things. And as a, as a family of organisations, everyone feels very deeply about every single one of those five. Mm. So, yeah. I think one other reason why that was went the way it was is we've not been and there were never any heroes in Arosha it was always a community effort and whenever anybody tried to tell the story in such a way that it looked as though there were any heroes we, we demythologized it very fast <laughs> no truly and it grew, the, the, the launch pad was a very ordinary church near Liverpool at the beginning and the whole church got behind this effort right? Yeah. they sold sweatshirts, they produced meals they did the finance, you know, it, it grew out of very... Uh, but it was always a, a community effort from the get-go. Mm. And I think it's much harder for individual founders who want everybody to follow. There's a foundation I won't name, which has as its ruling principles now, lets me change the names. 
what does David think that Richard would have wanted to do when George was alive? And then, and then, and it, and George, George is still speaking from the grave. The money is only given, like, you know, and they've surrounded it in the history around. Let me tell you, the third generation are doing what would make George roll in his grave. And, and he had the best lawyers to, to tie up these billions that it would be donor intent. You can't do it. You know, I'm gone. In probably quite a short time. Dad, stop it. No, but you know, I mean, you can't do that stuff. And we've never wanted to be that. We wanted to be a faithful people following the Lord into the future that he has for us. But it, I was thrilled, personally, just personally, that when they threw it all up in the air, everybody from around the world, and there are some strong voices in some of these nations, let me tell you, <laughs> and some powerful personalities, but at the end of the day, everybody said, yes, this is what we were. Mm-hmm. What we we were didn't doing. want to add anything either. Mm-hmm. No. Nothing added, nothing taken And we away. try and tell a true story, which can be ugly at times. So last night at dinner in Paul's house, it was lovely, because the question was, what's Arosha? And I did, did my little thing. Mm-hmm. And then there were some people there who'd known Arosha in the Czech Republic for the last 20 years. And I said to them, does that reflect what you know of Arosha in Czech Republic? And they said, absolutely, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so we're constantly road testing it against reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Can I just repeat something? I know that you don't want to repeat what you said this afternoon, but I'm, I, I feel like I have the right to repeat what you said this afternoon. <laughs> um, what is <laughs> what is Ben think that Peter said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I'm listening uh, for the tweak. <laughs> no, I'm just well. well first, first of all, backing up, um, it seems to me that this is just a very, a very uh, trusting and open-handed uh, way of of um, running an organization before the Lord, seeing what he will, he will do with it, but also just a very, in, in a way, a very wise and strategic thing to do, given that the ecological issues in each country are so specific to that location, and yeah. that's really the vision. It's not to have some some scheme of what doing ecology looks like and to impose it on all these places. It's, it's not a franchise. Yeah, it, it's, it's to have local people in these areas that really know what's going on, uh, to bring to bring the convictions and the ethos of this organization to to that place, uh, which is really it's it's wonderful. Um, and what I was going to say was the the way, um, or said what you said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, people on staff in Arusha have to have a Christian Christian commitment, and yet there's an amazing willingness to work with and welcome anybody in who is concerned for these ecological issues. And so there's there's a... Um, it's what Schaefer would have called... Schaefer had a term, I think he admitted it, uh, co-belligerence. Basically, you're, you're, you may disagree with this other person about everything, except for this issue, and, and yet you're willing to join forces with them, uh, maybe for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe it's our conviction that it's an obedience to and out of love for God. Um, and yet... Uh, we can we can join forces. We can we can share the yoke with somebody <laughs> who doesn't share those convictions at all, and without 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 feeling guilty or that we've transgressed or something. Could you also just speak to that a little bit? What the, the, the diversity of different kinds of people, including trained scientists, um, people that may not buy into the Christian faith, but are intrigued and decide to come and do research on one of the sites or or. Um, I think it starts from where you begin your theology. But I think a lot of Christian theology starts at Genesis chapter 3, 
and then short of the end of Revelation. And it, it's just... But if you begin with the community of creation and, and you're looking to the new creation, there's a, there's a we about that from the, from the word go. So we, we have a, a long common road to go together before we may differ over mm-hmm. things like who is Jesus Christ and what is his significance. We want to retain that commitment ourselves and we want to be clear that that is why we do what we do. But people can walk with us a long way down the road before we get to those questions. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'd say is conflict is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to the mess of hospitality and what is community. Community can be a pretty ugly thing at times, you know. Um, and I don't, Miranda, I'm not ventriloquizing her, but she always used to say that conflict is, is inevitable <coughs> and important. And, and it's not a bad thing if you're going to fall out. And, and I won't pretend that there weren't times I had a bit to do, but not much, with this covenant process in, in the earlier times. And it stirred up strong opinions and strong feelings. And there was politics, and there was dissent, and there was argument. But, but it's a good thing when Christians can go in for good disagreement. The problem now is we're so scared that if we disagree at all, we're just going to go off into our different universe. We don't do it at all. So we have got to learn to disagree well. And it won't break the bond. Uh, and to say, well, we're just going to not agree about this, but we've got a lot of uh, road we can do together. Do you know who Brené Brown is? Mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a Brené Brown so <laughs> anyway, she talks about having a, in her organisation they have a commitment not to have any meetings after the meeting mm-hmm. like if you have something to say you just like mm. otherwise yeah the, the stuff hap- it does happen mm-hmm. it's just whether it happens with the person concerned or not right. so I have a question um, so we're, we're talking a little bit about the distinctive parts of different countries of Russia. so what would you, what would you sense would be um, the uniqueness of the UN, the challenges in the, from coming from the outside and, and sharing with Americans mm-hmm. and speaking to them? What would you find would be the uniqueness of of America? America? Mm-hmm. Does that does that question make sense? Mm. I might say that rather than saying it as an outsider, that Avery spoke really interestingly about that this morning. Was it this morning? Some point in the last 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> you say, sorry, when you say uniqueness, you mean distinct from the other expressions of Russia? Yes, because, um, well, I've been working with the butterflies here, and, and it has been really challenging here. And so I, I'm just wondering what um, with the challenges of with the challenges that you all have what, what that Arasha's had in the USA what um, what are the unique um, jewels like that are different than than other countries does that make, does that make sense within the work of Arasha USA yes from, yeah. from your perspective. Mm-hmm. From your Oh my gosh, so I think my battery's running quite low. Okay, so yeah, please forgive me if I, I'm going to miss some stuff. But um, 
Jo has three. an American husband, it needs to be said, so she's kind of an insider and an outsider. <laughs> in that sense, I think you have a, and you've lived in North America for quite a long while, so probably not exactly an outsider's perspective either, is it, Jo? Maybe not. I'm trying to. I'm desperately trying to think about Awashi USA's work. I know they do really great stuff with the Marine Conservation Program in Florida. Um, there's something called Love Your Place, which is a program encouraging people to. Um, to, yeah, care for their own backyards and their own be good stewards of God's world where they in their small and specific locations they're in and there's lots of resources associated with that and um, online kind of Zoom talks and um, book clubs and that kind of thing to inc- draw people into a community and encourage them to stay um, hopeful um, While you're thinking yeah, thank for you. your batteries going I would also say, actually, and you are part of this, that quite unusually there's been a synergy between artists and conservation people within Arosha in the USA. Mm-hmm. So the whole singer-songwriter community down in Nashville and elsewhere and the, mm-hmm. the workshops they've done, the work you've done with the butterflies through your painting, the work which Anna did through her poetry, who was mm-hmm. here. I think that's been a gift of Arosha USA to the Arosha family. Mm-hmm. So Sandra McCracken came and led the worship for our whole global forum a mm-hmm. couple of times back. Mm-hmm. And we love that. And and I think that's been a not exactly unique, but it's certainly been a great strength of the Arosha expression. And talking of co-belligerence, I've talked a lot with Mako Fujimura, yeah. the artist, and yeah. we've realised as we've talked that culture care and creation care face very similar issues and problems and we could be co-belligerent mm. in finding and helping each other to get round our roadblocks and difficulties. So I think that's a distinctive here and a richness that you have of artistic expression which is the same thing really that, that's, that's lifting up the creator and honouring the creation. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so good because I feel like art, it speaks to the heart, and with a scientist, it, it could take the data of the scientist and and speak to the heart in America. Mm-hmm. That is, like, really unique and yeah. I really appreciate mm-hmm. I think we'll keep doing what you do, won't you? Mm-hmm. It is a blessing. Yeah. Are you guys okay with a few more questions, or, sh- or shall we... I'm good. Well, maybe we more. should ask these guys. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Chris, Chris, you got one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This question might demonstrate my ignorance on the topic. But um, I was just curious. If it doesn't, I won't have anything to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Ask it anyway. Yeah. Um, the spirit of your chat. Just with, with the occasional or, or even frequent kind of intense news article about the, the drasticness of everything that's happening, either with rises in temperatures or... Uh, ex- extinction of species or even like the increase of antibiotic resistance because animals are, you know, we're taking that. How come we're not seeing, like, what's protecting, especially first world countries, from these effects that we should probably be seeing? I guess COVID would be the most intense recent one, but besides that, it feels like. So you're sort of saying, why aren't things worse? There's, there's, yeah, there's very worrying signs, but it feels like it's almost like this expanding heat wave instead of like problem happening, it's a big growing thing that's going to explode instead of, which seems like an odd mm. I don't know, what's keeping that from happening I have a French colleague who feels this is the mercy of God Interesting. Mm. That, it, that it's the resilience of creation, 
amazingly resilient. Mm. I mean, that's the good news. Conservation works. If we could only do a hundred times more of it. Yeah, it does. I mean, you can read... There's another, there's another way of looking at conservation, which I'll call... So we're very blessed at the moment. We've kind of got the Pope of World Conservation as our chief exec internationally. That's Simon Stewart, who is an extraordinary person. He's just won the Blue Planet Award, which is mm. the Nobel Prize of Conservation. Yeah. And he's an extraordinary man and a complete, you know, he's been hugely influential in the world conservation movement, and he's a beautiful Christian and mm. our neighbour. Anyway, so, and he's running, he stepped up after the accident to become our chief exec mm. from being on the board of trustees, which was really a blessing and very noble of him to do that. And um, he will tell you that one way of looking at conservation is to map what could have happened if conservation actions hadn't taken place. Mm -hmm. So we're actually doing a lot of things right on Earth. Things would be a lot, lot worse if there wasn't a lot of great stuff going on on the ground. Even, um, I forget your name, I'm sorry, but these kind of local actions added up make a huge difference. And there's a lot of it going on in the world. You're not alone. I mean, there's tons of people planting pollinators, tons of people renewing neighborhoods, tons of people, you know, it's all over. So there's a lot of good stuff, and I think that's one reason it's not happening so fast. Mm-hmm. And, and it, of course, it's not happening fast enough, and it's not happening on a big enough scale, but it, the world can work with us being the gardeners, if you like. And, and so I think that's one reason it's not worse, is actually good stuff in the world. And there's a lot of it. And I, in the investment and finance world, I know people doing extraordinary things to scale up good in the world mm-hmm. with the deployment of capital. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be exponentially more scalable than philanthropy ever was. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, give you one silly example. Look at mobile phones in Africa. Mm-hmm. That's transformed local economies. It's brought wealth. It's brought all sorts of possibilities. Because a load of people made shed loads of money. Mm-hmm. If it had been a charitable project, it probably would have, you wouldn't be able to get the parts to be a few in Addis Ababa somewhere. You know what? But <laughs> the people were motivated by profit to do something which brought huge benefit across Africa mm-hmm. and, and I think the trick is to, to find those multipliers and levers and points of inflection and I think that's one reason why things aren't worse, theologically they're not worse because God loves the world and I think he's protecting us and giving us a lot, you know, read the signs of the times the pandemic for me was a warning, it wasn't just a thing, it was stop, you know, intensely keeping animals in close proximity to people in zoogenic conditions where all of these things are going to get out and finish you. You know, just don't do it. Have we learned? No, we haven't. So I think the Lord is merciful, and it could be a lot worse. And the other thing to say is we live in very protected societies. I don't know if you've traveled anymore, but if you go to a lot of parts of the world now, you know, it's, it's becoming unlivable, which is why we're seeing huge migration there are more migrations now because of even with the Ukrainian situation because of climate change than because of war and even there's a pretty strong argument for many of these conflicts like Syria, like Ukraine like these are ecological conflicts writ in political terms What are some places that are having these big migrations of people besides like Ukraine? Come on Paul, I'm going to you are the quiet voice in the room who knows more about this than me so what are some of the Hotspots for human migration in response to all of this stuff. Would you say it's all over? It's all it's all over the world. 
And I think that especially, like, I think maybe Peter, you mentioned, like, where people are living in, you know, just refer to, you know, climate-sensitive livelihoods. Mm. So, we're, like, so we're sort of often quite protected from that sense of dependency. But in many places, and that's normally equates with poverty in poorer countries, then there's a much closer relationship. So, so in those, where the squeeze is on, it's not just a massive event, like extreme events, it's variability issues and unpredictability. So if you need to, it, it, you have to decide, and this is a critical decision, right? Like when do you plant a crop? <laughs> and, um, and if the weather is behaving peculiarly compared with what you've experienced in the past, and it fails, what do you do? And, um, and so you can only sustain that. It's like, we, you know, we had uh, some damage to a tree, and, uh, and um, this tree is not, not healthy. What's, you know, what's got it? And an arborist told me lots of things. <laughs> and it was like, it got weakened. And, and I think that's, what, that's what's happening, that community of people... Are, are, are experiencing stress and looking for alternatives. So migration is like, it could be a very grand scheme migration, like international refugees. But more often than not, it's internally displaced people and massive trend towards urbanization uh, because you can't sustain your family you know, living the way that um, you, you know, a generation ago, you would have, would have been more feasible. So, so I think it's actually I mean, people are very reluctant to say climate refugee, um, but um, because there's so many factors. But it's it's an it's a it's another it's a, it's a it's a huge driver. Uh, and, and and of course, like I don't know, is it eighty percent of the population are coastal? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and so that's that, that's a major issue, and, and climate is having a big impact, of course, the coastal with respect to sea level rise, and, and not just well because the sea is now here and the storms are coming in, but salt water intrusion, mm-hmm. and and the impact upon ecosystems, and then again, you know, we're dependent upon healthy ecosystems. So, so it's so people have been. I'm going to give you I'm a storyteller, I'll give you one story so a young couple came and talked to me at our centre in Arusha, Canada and they were part of an organisation called Servants for Asia's Poor they lived in the poorest uh, communities in India and they wanted to work for Arusha and I said, gosh why would you work for Arusha when you were living with the poor where they really were making a difference. And they said, why are people showing up in these informal settlements all over the world? Because they can no longer stay on the land and farm in a resilient way in climate variability and everything. And they wanted to work in such a way that people could stay in the rural communities where they don't want to leave. They don't want to end up in the slums of Manila or Nairobi or Kampala or whatever. Uh, And so they wanted to work upstream of that situation rather than just downstream when it's already too late and everybody's come into these completely unsustainable massive informal settlements which are and incidentally I learned from a 
lady who's a friend of mine who'd lived in one of these for 18 years. The problems of living there are not the problems that I would have thought. She said the real problem is noise. It's 24-7 noise, mm-hmm. trying to survive in those places. It's mm-hmm. not even that the water is completely foul. or that there's, but She said, I've never suffered violence in my 18 years. She said, but the noise is just intolerable. Mm-hmm. So it's not what you think. And as Paul said, it's very multi-layered and multi... It's, it's, if it was simple, he would fix it. It's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. But I don't know where you are with the sort of tipping point kind of ideas, but I do feel that what we do seem to see is a sudden fracture when these multiple things accumulate after a certain point rather than a gentle letting down or an adaptation. And I, I, I think COVID was a, a sort of fracture moment uh, for globally uh, in a very unusual way. Just the head in the back. I, just, I think maybe you can ask your question, and maybe that's the last question for this evening because I want to allow our guests to... And he'll be around rest. to chat for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'll be around till her lights go out. I'm under orders from the rest of her siblings to make sure she gets enough rest. This is, <laughs> this is day two of a, of a 16-day tour, so oh, we okay. have to keep her going. And you too. I'm not coming. I'm on the journey. I'll keep it short. I just wanted to bring it back around to the book mm-hmm. and um, just say how excited I am to read it. And uh, so just for the average lover of Jesus, who is not a conservationist per se, but we live in a rural landscape and we seek to steward our property and we have a large home and we do practice hospitality. I'm really looking forward to reading the book and being inspired. That's how I got my husband here tonight. I <laughs> saw it online yesterday. I was like, oh, because of the Labrie email that came out. I'm like, we have to go. Um, are there some resources that we can get from you or others that would just help us to educate ourselves and to have it start to become a normal part of the fabric? of our conversations around the table about food and about where did it come from and I mean I'm really naive about all of that. I go to the supermarket I buy it, I bring it home, I cook it, I eat it that's it. Um, And I I just kind of grew up in that and I want to change, I want to be more sensitive to uh, the butterflies and I have started to help the milkweed plants flourish and you know but I'm a real newbie and I think just the idea of having those conversations around the table with multi-generational guests just kind of like you said that's what Jesus did and he taught around the table and he taught around food and um but it would be helpful to have resources (laughs) so I guess my question is I did see that you're on the book. The book is a, it's part of a book club read thing or something. So maybe you could just give a plug very shortly about that. Yeah, sure. So um, there's, in the UK, they have a thing called the Big Church Read. So um, I was part of that with this book. And it's got um, there's six sections in this. So you could do it as a small group or a six-week book study yourself. It's really sh- like four minutes and some discussion questions based around the six sections. Um, in terms of other resources, I think you should chat with Freddie 
And also, um, my, one of my very favourite books on this, I hope it's still in print, but you could probably find it secondhand. Um, Lauren, and, Lauren and Mary Ruth Wilkinson, who were, who um, are real pioneers in this area and live, live it very, very beautifully in, on the island of Galliano, um, off the coast of Vancouver. Um, so it's called Caring for Creation in Your Own Backyard. Mm. I really love it. Mm. I hope it's still in print. Um, there's a bibliography in your book too, isn't there? Oh yes, yeah. at the back of this, there's oh. some books. Mm. Um, but you would do us a favour if you emailed Joe and said, I can't find this, could you provide it? Because yeah, we're, we're listening to people to know what they want and how to take this forward and we'll only find out when people ask us. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a rush of stuff, there's loads of yeah, good stuff out great. there to connect you to that's being done by loads of other people as well. So. Oh, I should say, so there's a website called um, Place at the Table without the app.info, <laughs> um, which is in the back of the book, but that's how you can get the, um, the book club thing. It's free and it's just sitting there. Place at the table.info. Yes, I found it online. Oh, there you go. Well, so right. the rabbit yeah. <laughs> Oh, good for you. <laughs> and there's a gallery there and there are recipes there and there are, you know, rabbit trails. Rabbit trails, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So thank you all so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe is going to read one more um, passage from the book. So there are little prayers in at the end of each section, and this was the prayer um, that I took from a letter my mum wrote to one of her friends. So I just want to pray as a blessing over us mm-hmm. as we go. But um, yeah, do stay around and chat with us. She says, I'll be praying so much for you and feeling very close to you. And may the Lord cause our paths to cross again ere long. Meanwhile, may he cause his face to shine upon you, his peace to reign in your heart, and his love to wrap you around always, keeping you in his ways which are life. Amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah. I've read it a few hundred times, but I never know. You did amazing. Just, just <laughs>